You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the January 27th, 2022 edition of Carbon Removal Newsroom. Today, we'll be focusing on business articles. It's our first podcast without Holly, so we have a new guest host who will be with us, and I'll be introducing him in a second. But I'll start with Susan Sue, who is a partner focused on climate investing at Toba Capital. She also serves as a board member of the newly created Carbon Business Council and a board advisor to the Environmental Voter Project. Hi, Susan. Welcome. Hello. And today, as our guest host, we have Naeem Merchant at Naeem Merchant, is a consultant who works with NGOs and startups on scaling up carbon removal. He writes the Carbon Curve newsletter about the carbon removal industry and the new carbon economy. He recently published a piece titled Eight Unique Direct Air Capture Companies to Watch in 2022, and that will be our first topic of discussion. So Naeem, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And always, this is Radhika Mulgafkar, Head of Supply and Methodology at Nori. So you recently posted, Naeem, about these eight DAC companies to watch. You wrote that in 2030, it's a critical decade for DAC in which company researchers and policymakers working on it will have to figure out how to do three things. One, improve its performance, two, bring down cost, and three, responsibly deploy the technology. So we all know probably, or most people listening have probably heard of the three big picture, big incumbents that have been working in the space since 2009, uh, Climeworks, Carbon Engineering and Global Thermostat. But obviously the scale of carbon removal is gigantic. We'll need lots of different companies to capture billions of tons of carbon dioxide annually globally. So um, maybe you can give us kind of a brief overview of these new entrants or maybe some old entrants in the DAC space and what has made you so excited about them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been, you know, working in carbon removal for a couple of years with an interest in, in kind of helping catalyze the market for permanent or durable carbon removal solutions. And, and as you mentioned, for years, there's been, you know, three kind of trailblazing incumbent players in the direct air capture space who, you know, are each kind of hitting important inflection points recently. But what's been really exciting to me is to see new direct air capture companies emerge and, you know, seeing kind of universities and research institutions get funding for direct air capture. And, you know, like I said, I think this is a defining decade for DAC because it's a decade where direct air capture companies need to figure out, you know, the, how to improve performance, how to bring down costs and how to responsibly deploy the technology. And so, you know, I think it's a kind of important prerequisite to getting all of that done. It's better if more people and more companies are working on tackling those challenges. They're more likely to find a solution. Um, and so I wanted to kind of, you know, shine a spotlight on these kind of eight uh, eight companies, there's many more, uh, and I, I'd probably do a follow-up post on that soon, uh, who are kind of taking really novel approaches uh, to, to direct air capture, whether that's through kind of, you know, novel technologies or materials or approaches to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And, and something that I've noticed across a lot of these organizations and companies is a focus on modular design. So they're thinking about manufacturing direct air capture units as opposed to constructing gigantic direct air capture plants, which I, I think is important in order for DAC to come down the cost curve. 
So something that's you know been really interesting over the past you know the past year or so is seeing more and more of these kind of companies come out um, and emerge that have these these really interesting kind of features. Cool. And Susan, as you were reading his piece, or probably already knew most of, about these DAC companies, was there one or a couple that really caught your eye, and if so, why? Yeah, um, well, I, I've been a longtime fan of, uh, of Noya just because I love the business model. It helps others win as they win. Um, and I like that it, exi it leverages existing infrastructure. I also really like, or I'm intrigued by, I should say, rather than uh, expressing a, a biased preference already, but I'm very intrigued by carbon capture just because of the level of funding that's behind that one and also the team that's that's behind it. I mean, they've got senior people from some of the uh, OG carbon capture. And I think that that's really meaningful that folks have chosen to leave decades in, in the making projects and carbon capture to come and join carbon capture. It's kind of confusing because the company's also called carbon capture. They've got a great name, but it's also probably a little bit hard for them to own. Um, so I'll be really curious to see how they take this kind of legacy, deep legacy experience in the space and um, put it into something new. And then finally, um, I'm really intrigued by Verdox as well, just because it is very unique, truly breakthrough science. But the actual design um, of their, of their um, mechanism is like quite simple. And that enables it to be um, easier to scale. You know, one thing in terms of what I look at more generally in all of these companies is what is the dumbest technology? What is the minimum viable technology we need to solve the problem? Um, and I think that, you know, Verdox has like this really complex stuff housed in relatively, I don't want to simplify at all what they're doing, but relatively um, easy to build and sort of fail proof tech. So I think that one's really interesting too. Well, I love that there's now an OG in carbon removal that tells you we've evolved because I'm pretty sure a year ago we might not have said it or two years ago. But um, maybe, Naeem, you could uh, let our listeners know who haven't yet had a chance to read the article, those three, those three companies that Susan just highlighted, kind of what the differences are between them and how they are similar and how they are different. Yeah, that's a great question. So I guess to start with Noya, you know, yeah, very interesting model. Noya has developed a direct air capture approach that retrofits existing cooling towers. You'll find cooling towers on a lot of kind of large buildings and industrial buildings. Um, and they can, instead of kind of building a new direct air capture unit from scratch, can retrofit an existing um, a cooling tower. Uh, and and what's interesting about that is, as, as Susan mentioned, um, it kind of creates a, a revenue stream for the, the business or the building that, you know, uses Noya's technology. Um, and it brings down the kind of overall kind of capital costs that, that um, are required to develop uh, a direct air capture, you know, uh, installation uh, for, for Noya. So that's a really interesting kind of approach that, that Noya's taken. I'm also, you know, I think uh, Susan's point around carbon capture, uh, the company is, is, you know, similar to, I, I don't think as, is, you know, as maybe different as some of the incumbent direct air capture companies in terms of their uh, technology per se. But as Susan mentioned, it's, 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 you know, received a significant amount of funding um, in, in recent kind of months. 
but also it is, has just this amazing kind of team behind it. It was incubated at Idea Lab. And so there, you know, there's something really kind of um, unique and interesting about, about carbon capture. And then finally on Verdox, I think, you know, as, as I mentioned in my article, I think what Verdox brings to the table is something that could be potentially kind of game changing or paradigm shift in carbon capture technology, um, because they kind of use this uh, electro swing technology as opposed to kind of a typical, um, you know, heat swing technology that you typically see in, um, in, in many direct air capture technologies. So when I visualize, you know, direct air capture energy requirements, I kind of compare DAC to a sponge, a sponge that's collecting carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And eventually that sponge gets saturated and you need to squeeze out the sponge. Um, the process of squeezing out the sponge requires a lot of energy. So for many companies that's applying a high degree of heat to this sorbent or solvent, effectively the sponge that was used to capture CO2. And that requires more heat than renewable sources of energy like solar or wind can deliver. And so, you know, those companies might need to use waste heat or fossil fuels to power that stage of the process. And that can be a bottleneck to deployment. So when you can, you know, like Verdox, use this electroswing adsorption technology that uses electricity to trigger a chemical reaction, that makes it possible to use renewables like solar and wind as your energy input. And that can really bring down the cost and make the technology more scalable. I just add a few caveats to that is that, you know, Verdox is still at this kind of prototype stage, you know, so what you can do in the lab is very different than what you can do at mm -hmm. scale. And, and their technology also uses carbon nanotubes and other kind of materials that are many times more expensive than materials used by other DAC companies. So that's kind of a barrier that they'll need to contend with. So those are kind of the, some background on some of those three initial uh, direct air capture companies worth highlighting. So I could go so many ways, but uh, I think the first thing I kind of want to focus on, and I'd love to get both of your perspectives on this, is that of the three that you mentioned, only the first, Noya, seems to be like an additional revenue source for a building versus the sole revenue source being a carbon credit. And so what do you both see as being the overall business model for these DAC companies if carbon credits don't hit the highs or even come close to the highs that are being predicted? How do they monetize their technology if the carbon credits don't meet the value that some people are predicting? And I'll start with you, Naeem, and then Susan, I'd love your thoughts as well. That's a really good question. One area that I'm particularly interested in is, um, is DAC to concrete. We've seen a lot of kind of companies like Carbon Cure, Carbon Built, and others that um, infuse concrete with CO2. And so what that allows for is, you know, a company that's building a direct air capture unit can um, site that direct air capture unit at a concrete plant and sell that CO2 to the concrete um, producer at the price that they would normally pay some external kind of provider on the CO2 merchant market. And so that can be, that can take up some of the bridge costs, I guess you would say, for um, making CO2 available. Uh, so I think that could be an interesting, interesting way to kind of bridge the gap where you kind of mentioned a situation where, you know, the, the, the price for carbon credits might be too high for, you know, for, 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 for consumers. And so, you know, having that additional revenue stream and it's still carbon removal because the carbon that's captured by that direct air capture unit is infused in concrete and stays there permanently allows you to have, you know, the revenue stream from the concrete producer alongside the carbon credit 
And so that can, you know, instead of paying for the entire cost of removing carbon from the company standpoint or the buyer standpoint, you're, you're doing it only kind of partially because part of the cost is picked up by the concrete plant. So that might be an interesting way to kind of address that challenge where, you know, the, 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 the price might be too high for some corporate buyers. Susan, what do you, any thoughts? I am actually going to go out on a little bit of a limb and um, go ahead and disagree with that. I think that no matter what, if you are performing high tech uh, direct air capture that has a lot of costs, not just the energy inputs, but really the research and development inputs to it and whatever CapEx is required to get those technologies to scale, whatever uh, you do with that carbon, whether you make a concrete product out of it or you make a carbon fiber bike out of it or you um, simply put into the ground, it's going to be expensive because of all of those upstream production costs inherent in every um, unit of that CO2. So I personally think that there are, there are actually a number of, um, you know, kind of carbon to concrete plays out there, some really interesting ones. But the question there is, can that concrete be or cement or whatever product they're making, can that actually be cost competitive? And if not, then you're talking about um, looking for buyers that are willing to pay the same green premium that you're asking them to pay in the voluntary carbon markets. It is the exact same thing. And I actually have a lot of faith in the carbon markets, even when they're only, you know, quote, only voluntary. I think that there, um, we see it in, in consumer, for example, there's uh, a lot of discretion between different customer and buyer segments. People will um, shop at Parachute Home for really expensive sheets versus shopping at Target for organic sheets, organic cotton sheets at a fraction of the price. Why is that? Buyers self-segment into different price and premium kind of tiers. And I think we'll see the exact same thing when it comes to whether it's carbon credits, whether it's uh, concrete, but I don't think that there's, you know, sort of, um, it makes sense to say, well, utilization is better than voluntary markets because you get to make money off of it. Either way, somebody's going to make money off of it. And um, in both paths, you're going to need to rely on a consumer that has differentiated preference or a buyer, I should say, because some of these buyers are going to be, a lot of the, most of the buyers are going to be enterprises. Really interesting. It'll be, I have to say, I hope Susan's um, prediction about the voluntary markets is correct and that it that it explodes in the way that people, some people are predicting and seeing. I've always thought about it as sort of two revenue, you always need a couple revenue streams right now while carbon credits are at the price they are, maybe forever. I'm in soil ag, right? And the soil carbon removal is what we call the cherry on top. And so I still struggle to see the cherry on top when you're talking about DAC where their main perspective is or their main revenue source is carbon credits and until, and I don't know when and if and when the price will be high enough that DAC will make sense for anyone besides the really like aggressive Microsofts and Stripes of the world. But my second question around this was more to around like DAC and its acceptability was around number three, where you talked about responsibly deploying the technology. You didn't go into it in uh, great detail in your article, Naeem, but I was assuming you meant by that, like res responsibly deploying it from a climate justice perspective and also maybe from a government policy perspective. So can you give us any thoughts on how 
uh, or if you how you predict the future around government policy will be in this area. Um, and I'm most particularly curious about the permitting aspects of it and also like the pipeline development aspects of a lot of these DAC projects. Yeah, I, I didn't go into too much detail on, on that on the article itself. I think, you know, I think that there are a lot of different ways this can go. Can go. It's, it's really hard to kind of predict where, where policy is going to kind of help solve this problem. I think that there's a real issue, and we don't talk about it enough in regards to kind of carbon storage and transportation and some of that supporting infrastructure that's necessary to make something like direct air capture work, you know, at least as far as direct air capture to sequestration. and. You know, I, I think that um, I did kind of look at it from a, a climate justice point of view and that we kind of need to learn how to deploy uh, direct air capture in a way that involves communities and engages communities in the process while also kind of being able to be deployed in a fairly uh, streamlined manner. And figuring out that balance is gonna be really, really hard. And I think that's where I think policymakers and, and community groups have uh, an important role to play. So I don't, I'm not sure exactly where that's going to go. I'm concerned about the the fact that right now, if you wanted to, uh, you know, capture large volumes of carbon or of CO2 and and store it in a, a classic well, that that's not a trivial thing to do. That's a, that's that there's a lot of regulation and permitting that's required. And in a context where we need to be removing large volumes of CO2 from the atmosphere, uh, that's something that we need to figure out. And I think what we're seeing right now is that in the absence of, of clarity around, you know, infrastructure around CO2 storage and transportation and, and not really knowing how to do this in a just way, some of these early stage direct air capture companies are partnering with concrete producers and concrete plants to be the provider of CO2 because that's a way to lock up small volumes of CO2, get, you know, your early units of direct air capture into the world uh, and still be able to claim carbon removal and earn some kind of carbon credit for that. And I think that's the strategy that a lot of them will take in the absence of policy that we, we really need to see um, at the state and federal level around um, some of these infrastructure challenges on storage and transportation that I think importantly takes you know, equity and justice into consideration. Thanks. Um, Susan, I'm going to pivot now a little bit more to the generic general business news of the last few days, which is obviously the market has been going crazy up and down a lot of uncertainty. The Fed made their announcement yesterday that they were going to be raising interest rates immediately. I think one of the impacts, right, is climate tech stocks have fallen. Another impact I was reading about this morning is some of the valuations around these startups have been lowered or they're being renegotiated as they're going through series different series of funding. So I'm curious if you think this will have a near-term effect interest on investors in projects like hardware intensive DAC that are more longer term and um, what you see kind of is the future for some of the, or the near-term future, the like next 12 to 18 months for these DAC companies as they think about their funding and finances. Yeah, I think let's, let's move it a little bit always look upstream at, at what's been going on. 2021, as we all know, was just a massive year for fundraising and that's true for companies, but that's also true for funds. So pretty much every climate tech fund that I know, as well as a bunch of generalist funds that have raised side vehicles or have made carve outs, 
they are completely flush with cash. They have never been so flush with cash in their history. And that cash has a ticking clock on it. And so I think investors will continue to deploy. Now, I don't think that you can take a look at the clean tech stocks. I wouldn't even necessarily call them climate tech stocks, the clean tech stocks, the public equities that have been taking a plunge and say, well, that's going to affect early stage private equity in climate tech simply because the companies that we see at the early stages are so completely different. Climate tech of 2021, 2022 is completely different than the clean tech companies that have had a chance to SPAC or go public over the last 10 years. They're a lot broader, first of all. They are started by a completely different breed of founder, um, operated by a different breed of operator. And so I think it's a little bit... um, it's, it's a little bit apples to oranges to compare, but I also think just the broader point is that um, fortunately, a lot of funds sort of got just ahead of that cycle. They locked in their, their raises and they have war chests to deploy into companies. Now, I think in particular, when you're looking at very long cycle um, categories like direct air capture or just like technological carbon capture, carbon removal, um, it's, we, nobody thought that this was going to turn a profit in a year or 12 months anyway. I do think maybe we'll see a little bit more um, coming down to earth on valuations. And that's honestly a good thing. I always tell founders, you do not want to inflate to the moon on your seed or your series A, especially if you're a climate tech company that is pre-revenue, pre-traction, there is no need for that. You'll have plenty of time to catch up on valuation later. And it is a long road. It is a long life. It's not about your Series A valuation. It's about how you perform later on and how uh, a current valuation sets you up to um, not fail or not appear like you're failing or raising a down round, but appear like you are continually um, climbing up this curve of goodness. So I think it's, it's going to be all good. And I think DAC is just it has, you know, sort of left the station already. I think that and fusion, there's just so much excitement around it. And there's a lot of um, deep pocketed long-term capital that's very interested in that category, almost sort of for passion reasons. Um, And I think that that's okay. And I think that will continue to fuel a lot of growth um, in this area in terms of early stage venture. Very sage advice, Susan, as a person in a seed Ish company. I appreciate that. Um, so final question to you both, uh, and I'll start with you, Susan. So if you were running one of these startups, you were doing um, the pitches to investors, how would you set yourself apart from all the other DAC? Because it seems like DAC is now getting inundated. So how do you set yourself apart? And what do you what are you thinking about when you pitch to an investor? And Susan, I guess you are an investor, so maybe you might take it from the opposite perspective. What would you want to hear as an investor? Um, I can share an example from uh, a a separate category seen recently, which is, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of climate tech, a lot of corners of climate tech that are just like very long cycle, kind of long haul problem solving challenges. And I think what's really common when you have that is, to say, well, we're working on all of this science and technology. It's a huge engineering problem. It's an R&D problem. And we'll figure out uh, the business model or we'll figure out the unit economics later. And what I've started to see is um, really kind of a rebuke of that where there are entrepreneurs coming to the table with 
just incredible pro formas, like the best financials. And these are projections, right? So they're not based on anything except for a bunch of really, really good, well thought out and well defended assumptions. So I'm starting to see a level of detail and a level of financial rigor um, in some of these other categories. And I'm sure it's happening in carbon removal as well. But I think that's where um, companies can really set themselves apart from maybe like the first generation that was a bit more almost academically focused on the science and engineering challenges. Now we, we have the suits coming in and I actually, actually think that's a great thing. Um, and I actually don't think it's different people necessarily either, right? But it's just sort of like learning to um, have a different type of conversation with investors. Um, so I think the more detail on business model, on specific, even sort of like bottoms up unit economics is something that can really set a company apart in an investor conversation. And what about you, Naeem? What would you focus on? Well, I, I really agree with Susan's point on the bottom up unit economics. I think that's what it ultimately will you know, come down to. And I think, you know, I think that it's tempting at times to think about, you know, direct air capture coming down the cost curve the way solar did. But, you know, these are different technologies and DAC has unique challenges, but solar's come down up in, in place 90% in the last 10 years. And I don't know that DAC necessarily needs to achieve that pace, but I think I would want to see how a startup has kind of addressed some of the challenges um, that kind of go back directly to cost around how efficiently they you know, capture CO2, minimize energy requirements, have a modular design that allow for kind of bringing down costs down, down, down the line. Um, so I think, I think, you know, uh, I think the business model, all of those pieces are important, but I think having a clear kind of roadmap to um, bringing down or lowering the cost of direct capture is going to be really critical. Um, and that's what I'd like to see. All right. Well, thank you both. That was a really interesting conversation about DAC. I think about as deep as we've dove into that space in a long time. But now I'm going to pivot a little bit to a report that uh, the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Group published. Uh, it's their inaugural long-term carbon offset outlook 2022. A little bit of a mouthful there, but hey, I'm happy to see that they've started reporting on it because I think it means that we're just getting more traction in the, this area. This outlook models several supply and demand scenarios for out, offset prices, and they had three scenarios particularly. One was the voluntary market scenario where any type of offset was per permitted, additionality was not considered, uh, results in a very high supply and low prices in 2030 and 2050. The middle scenario or second scenario was a removal scenario where only removals were allowed. So that's just carbon removal and sequestration. So you're not discussing avoided admissions. It still assumes a lot of forestry, which we have discussed on earlier podcasts and some of the challenges around that. Again, results in low supply or not again, but in reverse, it results in low supply and high prices in 2030 and 2050. Then finally, they took a look at the hybrid scenario where market transitions from the voluntary market of today to a removal only market by 2050 with high additionality. Uh, in this case, countries, not corporations are the main buyers by 2050 and it results in a manageable price rise and sufficient supply in 2050. And this report at least found that this was ideal for buyers and sellers. So. Susan, maybe you can give us a little more detail than I did about the different modeled scenarios and which do you personally think is most likely to occur? 
Sure. I mean, I think you did a good job just kind of highlighting, and, and they're, they're somewhat, I would say, self-explanatory also, right? So voluntary is a little bit of business as usual, or as it currently stands, a continuation of what we have today. Um, hybrid, I really think of hybrid as hybridizing with, uh, with some regulation, and what they call the best outcome um, well, they, they call the hybrid scenario the best outcome, but I think there's an implicit, even better outcome, which is like strong regulation. So we'd have this spectrum of government input um, into these markets. You know, I personally think that I, I'm like pretty cynical in general about regulation leading behavior change in industry. I actually think regulation follows behavior change, because if you just think about it, if you're a politician, how can you or, or any kind of regulator it's like we kind of forget that their job is to stay in the job and that their job is, and this is not even in any way a criticism of them whatsoever, right? This is just the reality of the world. They maintain rather than um, create breakthrough. That's, that's just the nature of regulating and of governing. And I think that's totally okay. We shouldn't be looking to our governments to make markets happen. We should be expecting them to be sort of in a laggard position um, of what is already happening. And I think that the voluntary markets, I actually, um, I don't remember if we talked about this on this podcast or if I just have had this conversation a number of times with other folks in the space, but I think this, the name voluntary markets is really problematic. Um, what is, you know, <laughs> how much of our social contract is voluntary? Probably all of it. You don't have to follow any laws. You could probably get away, for the most part, you can get away with a lot of things. None of it is voluntary, and yet we still fulfill our obligations to our neighbors, our coworkers, um, and even to strangers on the street. And um, I think that's just part of being in society. And I think not to get too philosophical about it, but I think that governs these markets as well, which is once there are enough participants that um, implicitly agree to uh, the same shared behavior, then can you really call a market voluntary anymore? Um, I would also cite another example, which is, um, you know, the fashion industry has been spotlighted over the past five or so years quite heavily for its waste, its um, emissions, its uh, effluent, and just in general, how terrible it is for um, sustainability on this planet. And there have been massive changes in the fashion industry. And I would say, that if you look at every single fast fashion purveyor out there, they've all got a sustainability pledge. They've all got several, you know, sustainability lines of clothing. Now, is that going far enough? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We're not going to kid ourselves. We know that H&M and Zara are still burning inventory, even as they have, you know, their like better cotton pledge items. But could you have imagined those same companies even eight years ago uh, devoting let's call it shelf space, okay? Shelf space on their websites and in their stores to products that are probably lower margin. Um, well, I actually don't know if they are lower margin or not, but they're certainly speaking to a different type of consumer, which is increasingly a majority consumer. I think that's a really good example of industries kind of self-regulating without needing a lot of government uh, intervention. And I'm not in any way trying to toe some kind of libertarian line here at all. I think uh, regulation is really important, but I don't think it drives change. 
And the last thing I would say just on the fashion point is, can you imagine 10 years from now, or let's say like 15 years from now, you know, the today's 10 year olds are 25 and they have purchasing power. Can you imagine those people being okay with clothes being incinerated or being okay with uh, child labor and like extracting materials from the earth in order to uh, produce another t-shirt that's going to be thrown away after a couple of days. I cannot imagine that. I cannot imagine that generation of um, people, of consumers being okay with that. And because, and I think we would all agree, like that's just not the direction we're headed in. And that didn't require, um, you know, sort of this hybrid model that the BNF study is implying. And that's just an example from fashion. So I think we're going to see the same thing in carbon markets. We're going to see a lot of self-regulation and we're going to see people starting from consumers, but moving all the way up to enterprises, understanding that there's a really big difference between the, you know, sort of junk credits that are out there and real carbon removal credits. Well, I would say I have children of your that you were mentioning of that age and I totally think you're right um, they just look at the world in such a different way and I and it's not even maybe from what they learn at home I think it's just from what they absorb in the world around them and you can see it from all the way from their views on the social issues to environmental issues and just their expectations of things and so as they learn more I can see them putting their expectations to their brand power. I mean, right now they're stuck with their parents, but eventually they'll be able to do what they want to do. So I completely agree with you on that, Susan. And I also completely agree with you on the whole idea of government being a leader. I worked in the government for a long time and it is hard to lead when you're also answering to constituents and you're also spending taxpayer dollars. Like you aren't free to do what you want because you have a different type of responsibility to the fiscal health of your company and company being the government. So I think those are really important points um, that you made. Naeem, you've been covering um, suppliers of the offset market that are more focused on permanent additional removals. So what do you think these markets need to do to support the types of companies we were just discussing rather than have a flood of cheap avoided emission credits? Yeah. Inexpensive. I, 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 I have... Um, I have a different view, I think, than Susan on this. I think I don't have faith in the voluntary markets as they're you know, set up right now. I don't have faith in self-regulation. Maybe if there wasn't the urgency to address this problem, I would feel differently. I think that regulation has its you know, pitfalls and it doesn't always work all that well. I'd also like to think that we can you know, live in a society where uh, we can expect more from our political leaders. I understand that we haven't seen a lot from our political leaders as of recent, but uh, there's no reason that that shouldn't be any different. Um, you know, I, and especially when it comes to rising to a challenge like, like climate change, I think we should be expecting more. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't disagree that there are some challenges with kind of, you know, regulating carbon markets and where there could be some kind of problems with with that along the way, but I think we need to, I think fully, if we really understand the scale of this challenge, we, I don't think can leave it to private actors to self-regulate and figure this out. I think the, the implications of that have been staggering. I think, you know, we are seeing um, 
carbon offsets being purchased for forests that were never in, under threat of being cut down, for example, right? Like, and there's nothing stopping private companies from paying $4 a ton for that offset. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's been, you know, I, I, I would argue that the voluntary offset market as it exists today might have actually done more harm than it's done good on balance because we've left it in the hands of private actors where the incentives don't align. So I, I think that, that to answer your question, I think these markets will need to do a better job of differentiating permanent carbon removal from these cheap avoidance credits. But unfortunately, the current system doesn't incentivize that in any way, right? So that pressure will need to come from the outside and whether that's civil society groups or that's NGOs or that's government, but I, I don't think the private markets are set up to do what needs to be done here. So I think there needs to be credible, rigorous uh, standards that set permanent removals apart from the rest to help justify the higher cost. I think there needs to be better kind of storytelling and education to private buyers about why carbon removal matters and while, why you know, avoidance credits, while they might be cheaper, aren't delivering much in return. But I, I strongly believe that there's going to be an, you know, a, a need for the public sector to intervene where either private sector demand falls short or where the incentives of you know, private sector actors are not aligned with the public good. And I think that this is one of those problems that justifies a stronger role for the public sector um, and, and more regulation and less kind of trusting companies to act like H&M and Zara. Like that's great, but what we're, we're talking about a, a pretty urgent problem here. Well, I don't cite H&M and Zara as leaders. They're definitely followers. They're following companies that are uh, entering the market and challenging them by being much more cutting edge and more forward thinking on sustainability and fashion. And I think likewise, the companies that are buying the $4 uh, offsets are completely different from Stripe, Shopify, Microsoft that are buying the six or $700 offsets. And I think what happens is if I'm one of those buyers that I'm like, really working hard to not only determine what is a high quality offset, but spending all this extra money to obtain them, I start getting pretty pissed off that there's other people claiming to be like me, but only paying $4 a credit. And I think that that tension within the private markets, which we should not think of as a monolith, I think that's actually what ends up moving the voluntary markets forward. I do think that part of the reason why the markets have not moved forward or been better is because there's a lot of opacity. And whenever there's opacity in a marketplace, opacity is the enemy of liquidity, okay? Like so many people do not get involved because they don't have trust in the market. And that's where government actors can play a role. It's not in necessarily regulating, but at least in defining. And I think that would be something great to start seeing which um, you know, we need to agree on just what these different words even mean. Um, but I, I have a lot of faith that there's already quite a lot of differentiation within the voluntary markets in terms of buyer behavior, and that that creates a productive, like I said, I think tension or conflict that will move the market forward. I think you know, we need to stop, you know, pointing to Stripe, Shopify, and Microsoft as these examples of, of what's gonna drive the change we need to see in, in the carbon markets. You know, 
I'm a big fan of what they've all done and, and a few other companies that have kind of followed early on, mm. but they're, you know, they're a leading, they're, they're, they're vanguards, they're, they're pioneers. That's not going to do the heavy lifting of driving scale up in carbon removal that we need to see. And we can't expect other actors to follow the same rules. And so having government play a role where they, def they define is just not sufficient. We need to have a role where government sets in clear kind of guidelines, standards, and regulation in order to get the scale that we need. If, 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 if it weren't for that, I think, yeah, we could probably count on more companies trying to get the brand lift that Shopify, Stripe, and Microsoft have gotten. I just don't think that's realistic for now that, you know, the next set of companies that don't have much to gain reputationally for supporting 600, 800, $1,000 per ton direct air capture uh, to, to follow in their, their lead. I think we need to, uh, we, we are now kind of entering a stage where uh, we need to more strongly kind of regulate and set standards around carbon removal because not every other company, in fact, I would argue the vast majority of companies don't have the foresight that Stripe, Shopify, Microsoft and others have had early on in this space. I, I would just add one tiny little story, which is super interesting on this to, to leave everybody with, which is that a friend of mine who um, works in uh, carbon offset research at, um, at the University of Cambridge, it, it, like advises these different um, company leaders and said, you know, I have um, a CEO of a Fortune 1000 mining company that I talked to, and his biggest worry is that he doesn't want to appear on the front page of the next Washington Post or Wall Street Journal as the bad guy who bought a bunch of ghost credits and is, you know, pulling the wool over everybody's eyes. And that is today without any regulation. And this is a mining company. They don't have to do any of this stuff. I'm not talking about Stripe or Shopify. I do think that there is a connection. I'm not saying government doesn't play a role. I just am not holding out. Look, given the current, you know, situation that we've been in, not only in the United States, but really globally, for there to be enough power there. But I do think that there is actually a lot of power in social norms and social license to operate. And that, that is going to, I mean, so it's already affecting a mining company of all company types, right? He doesn't have to care about that stuff at all. And yet he does because there's uh, a shareholder at the end of the line to answer to. There are some institutions to answer to and everybody's getting wise to um, what's good and what's bad out there. I am going to have to wrap this up right now. This has been a great debate and Naeem, maybe we should have you on again to, so you and Susan can deep get even deeper into it. But in the interest of giving Susan a few minutes to talk about some good government action, I will let you give us the good news of the week that you were previewing for us earlier. Yes, yeah, so we have uh, the, the theme of this week's, good, or this month's, I guess, good news um, from, from our flavor of the podcast is actually around uh, places where government is playing a really important role in doing the right things um, from two very, very different corners of the world. So the first is really, really big news that I think um, hopefully everybody in the United States knows about or will know about, uh, which is that the city council of the city of Los Angeles has voted to ban oil and gas drilling in the city. Um, now, why is this a big deal? It's probably one of the most progressive and, and aggressive moves um, of any city in the United States. And it's incredible to see a city government wielding its power in that way. Los Angeles has um, more oil and gas drilling sites than 
um, most, I think, or any other uh, urban zone in the United States, it has over 5,000 wells in the city, which is really crazy. And for anybody who is familiar with Los Angeles um, and has driven around the city just to do everyday things, you know what I'm talking about. You've seen the um, literally oil derricks just kind of on the side of the road, hanging out in, near, in and near neighborhoods. So that's going to be a very, very big change. And I think it's really a huge move for both environmental justice, um, but also just uh, showing that, you know, oil and gas and the, tr the energy and transition doesn't just live in some distant oil field in, well, maybe not distant if you live in these states, but in, you know, in some oil field in Texas or some fracking site in Pennsylvania, it can be right in an urban backyard and there are ways to start um, uh, influencing it and cities are wise to it. So I think that's really exciting. The second um, instant instantiation of this kind of like government is working good news is that um, China just revealed its five-year agricultural plan and it now includes cultivated meat, a provision for cultivated meat for the first time ever, which signals a huge commitment to both R&D um, and scale-up investment in a transition to a more sustainable food system for the world's largest and most populous country. China's Ministry of Science and Technology also recently launched a program called Green Biological Manufacturing. Like think about those three words together, green biological manufacturing. They're acknowledging that it's about sustainability. They're acknowledging that it's about Synbio. I think it's really exciting. And uh, just to top that off, I'll, I'll leave with a stat which some people may already know, which is that actually in China, 90% of consumers have uh, surveyed, have self-reported to being very open to the idea of cultivated meat and to all proteins, which is a stark contrast from um, societies and economies here in the United States and in the rest of the Western world. I think that's really, really exciting because um, China is a large consumer economy. And if its consumers are willing to transition to a different way of life, then that means great things for our future. Well, thank you very much, Susan, for that good news and for joining us on the podcast, as always, to talk business. It's been a few months, so it's nice to have you back. And Naeem, thank you so much for your time and for agreeing to guest host. I hope we can have you again on with all of with your New Year's resolution of lots of content. We'd love to highlight more of it as the year goes on. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much, and we will see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal.